stupid, you can just go ahead and tell me. <laughs> we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Dave McComey, and he wrote a book July 1st, 2021, titled Safe Cracker, a chronicle of the coolest job in the world. And currently, it has 44 five-star reviews on Amazon. I've read the book. I literally devoured the book. I thought it was fascinating. Really kind of a first-person account of somebody who's been in this interesting career for decades and shared a lot of kind of individual personal stories and uh, kind of showed me how this kind of uh, this little subset of the commercial world operates. So it was really fascinating. Dave is editor-at-large at the International Safe Cracker and is the author of 24 books on safes and vaults and is a member of the Safe and Vault Technicians Hall of Fame. He holds a master's degree in philosophy from the University of Washington and resides in the Evergreen State with his wife and children. But again, the title of the book is Safe Cracker, Safe Cracker by Dave McComey. So Dave, are you there? I'm here, glad to be here, William. Awesome, well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people maybe who not have heard, this is your first book. Can you talk kind of, you had this long career in safe cracking. Like, how did it start and how did you get involved in this uh, kind of curious, uh, job, this curious career. Yeah, it is an oddball profession. I'll, I'll give you that. My uh, my interest was sparked early on, uh, oddly, by a TV show. In the late 1960s, Robert Wagner starred as Alexander Mundy, uh, a jewel thief. Uh, he was rescued from prison by the equivalent of our CIA and tasked with burglarizing for them, you know, to state secrets and what have you. Well, I was absolutely captivated by uh, Robert Wagner's character, Alexander Mundy. I would watch the show. I would tape record it and the, the uh, audio. I loved it so much. I would tape record the audio to the show and listen to it at night without any, without any video. Well, coincidentally, the lady next door to us, I, I can't recall now if her purse was lost or stolen, in any event, uh, she had to have a locksmith come out to the house, open her house, open her car, and make keys to both. Well, my eyes were pie plates when I saw this locksmith band pull up, and I went outside and uh, just sheepishly introduced myself to him. He was in the back of the truck getting his tools ready. And, you know, it was one of those lucky things. Had he been a gruff individual and just you know, waved me away, I probably never would have ended up in this business, but he was the nicest, most genial man. Uh, invited me into the van, and when he once he got the locks in there to show me how the tumblers worked. But the most fascinating part was watching him go up to the car and to the house and pick the locks. I was just absolutely riveted, and from that day forward, uh, I knew what my career was going to be. So very young, like you started off in locksmithing. It's pretty remarkable. I mean, back in those days, I mean, that's 30 years ago, probably, right? Is that it? I mean, um, 50 years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah. you, so you've seen a lot of changes technologically from the beginning oh, yeah. of your career to the present. Like I think you're, you wrote in your book, you're semi-retired. Can you talk about how, so you started out kind of in the, in the locksmithing arena, but moved to safe and safe cracking. Can you mm -hmm. talk about how that, that transformation kind of occurred? Sure. The, uh, there's a, a common misconception out there that locksmiths are safe crackers and safe crackers are locksmiths. They're very different. Now, many locksmiths are good safe crackers. Most are not. Uh, a few safe crackers are good locksmiths. Most are not. They're just different areas of specialty underneath the same umbrella. Uh, 
uh, I knew instantly, you know, after spending maybe a month at Mr. Corey's shop, his name was Eugene Corey. I always called him Mr. Corey. I found safes and vaults way more interesting than cutting keys. Um, so I gravitated quickly to that side. And after a few years with him, he made clear that if I wanted to continue and learn about safes and vaults, I probably shouldn't be in general locksmithing. I should go to work for a large safe and vault company, which I begrudgingly eventually did. There was no other way to get better skills without going where they were needed. Right. It's really fascinating because you really kind of did a lot of traveling and going to different places on short notice from very little. You tell this story in your book, like they thought you, you were so young at some safe locking thing, they couldn't comprehend you were there. So you started, can you retell that story? I think you was like uh, something happened. You, uh, you work a lot with law enforcement too, right? But can you tell about that story? Yeah. You know, as a kind of a soft libertarian, law enforcement jobs are among my least favorite because I don't think it's our business if somebody wants to smoke pot and have pot in their safe. But it's part of the job when when law enforcement or the DEA brings a ring down, whether it's drugs or counterfeiters or whatever, and they have a safe, well, they need the safe opened and that's what they hire me to do. Now, I'm old now, but for a very long time, from the time I was about 15 until the time I was about 35, I looked like I was 15. So even in my early 20s, when I would show up on a job, people would often ask if my dad was going to show up sooner. They, they couldn't hardly comprehend that this kid was going to open the safe. Well, the one that you're talking about, it was a drug bust at a biker bar in southeast Portland. And when I pulled up, uh, the, the perps were all on... Uh, a sofa, a couple of sofas that were along the wall. And it was a disconcerting thing to walk in. I see the perps on the couch and all law enforcement, they are in uh, face masks. They've got uh, balaclavas on or whatever those things are called. They're like uh, ski masks. And I was instantly alarmed. Well, what the hell's going on here? So I pulled the commander over and I said, well, what's the deal? And he said, well, we're disguising our appearance because we fear reprisals from this group. I'm like, well, so great. Next month, when they see my mug in Safeway or the a restaurant, it's going to be me they remember. Yeah. And anyway, the, uh, the guys, the perps, uh, when I first walked in, they figured out why I was there. Uh, they just started chuckling among themselves. And then when they realized it was serious and the safe was going to be opened, wow, the profanity started coming my way. I wasn't used to that at the time. It was pretty intense. And the law enforcement, you know, didn't make any attempt to shut them up. I don't know how they would have anyway. So it was one of those cases where, yeah, they're yelling at you and swearing at you and mocking you that that MF and kid ain't getting the safe open. Well, I, of course I did. Well, it was uncomfortable, but it was a good learning experience, you know, to just learn how to sail through, ignore the surroundings and just do the job. And kind of fixate in like the theme throughout your book is you almost were like a doctor. So you would bring your own bag with your own set of tools and try to uh, crack the safe without too many people bothering you. Can you talk about kind of the implements that are used in your field? Well, the most valuable are our fingers, our hands, our hearing. Most guys that do what I do have much better hearing than I do. I have to use an electronic amplifier because I'm so hard of hearing. 
but it's mostly sight, hearing, and touch when we turn the dial. We don't need a lot of gear if we're going to manipulate successfully. Where we need gear is when manipulation isn't going to work and we have to drill. So we have a variety of drill rigs, as we call them. They're just machines, and their job is to give us a way of putting pressure behind a drill. When you're cutting hard plate in a safe or a vault, you've got to have pressure or the carbide won't be able to get through, won't be able to anneal the hardened steel that's in there. So we use a bunch of different drill rigs. I've got, I don't know, 10 or 12 different drill rigs. I only use two or three of them anymore. And most guys have a few. We've got our biggest investment though is in medical scopes. When I started in this business, we didn't have medical scopes. We had flashlights. And when Champion came out, the spark plug people, when they came out with a spark plug flashlight, which was basically like a doctor's otoscope, a cheap version of an otoscope, uh, we were thrilled. It's basically like having a flashlight with a little magnifier, but all you could see was wherever your hole was. And the beauty of medical scopes, when they came out a few years later, is that you can look in any direction you want. There are straight view medical scopes that look straight ahead. There are right angle medical scopes. They're very much like periscopes. They look at a right angle. And there are 30 degree, 45 degree, 50 degree, 70 degree, 110 degree, 130 degree, any angle you need, and we use them all, you can get in high-end medical scopes. And the third basic category of tools for us, just in addition to normal hand tools, would be things like drill bits. We're very picky. Safe crackers are, professional safe crackers are very picky about their drill bits. Um, and most of us prefer that we actually have a company in the trade that takes carbide tip drill bits and sharpens them on a diamond wheel to perfection. And they supply most professional safe crackers with drill bits. And so you kind of had a kind of a small community where you're writing a lot of papers and sharing kind of information. You keep meeting up with different people in Salt Lake City or Minnesota. Oh, so yeah. you kind of have a small community, right? Yeah, the safe and bulk community is fairly small. In terms of the technicians, virtually all of us know each other in the U.S. There might be a few outliers that don't partake of the conventions or the, the social things that we sometimes do together. But for the most part, well, I have friends in the business in every state in the union and many around the world. Uh, on my website, I think we're in, I don't know, a couple of dozen countries. I, I have a, I run a tech support. I'm sorry. I, I run in my part of my semi-retirement. Uh, I run a technical support hotline for professional safe crackers. And you have to be one to get in. I would urge everybody don't, don't try to apply to get in because we vet very carefully. And if you can't document that you are in the business, you get turned down. I turn down people every week. Gotcha. And so you're still kind of talking, but there's a vast majority, a vast array of different safes, manufacturer styles, technology. So you you had to have a very broad understanding of that whole kind of, even from the times and the decades they've changed, you've had to had an understanding of all the different manufacturers, correct? That's correct. Can you talk about some of those manufacturers and different styles? Because you had, you go through in your book, there's different bigger vaults, there's internal vaults, there's smaller safes. Like you've done so many different jobs in different states. Can you talk about 
the variety of saison. I mean, I think that's kind of goes into your to your books and your other authors that aren't like this that are more technical manuals, correct? Sure. The uh, the greatest variety comes from older saves in antique saves. The the time they were being made, say from the the mid nineteenth century, for about a hundred years we didn't have a lot of standardization. So every safe and vault maker had their own template. They had their own locks and nothing was the same. Today, everything is pretty much cookie cutter. We have what we call standard footprint locks and you can take one lock off and buy a new one and slap it right on. It has the same mounting footprint. That was not true a hundred years ago. You you had to be extremely well equipped with a variety of different locks to do any replacements at all. It's much easier to be a pro safe cracker in some sense today than it was back then, just because the variety, it was every safe, every safe manufacturer back then made products that were completely different than any, every other safe manufacturer. Whereas today there's a template, everybody follows it. Gotcha. And can you tell the listener to what a time lock is and how that, that was a common sure. uh, common problem? In the shortly after the Civil War was over, we had a rash of uh, pretty violent robberies, armed robberies in the U.S. And they're a little different than what you might think. They didn't take place in the bank. They took place in the bank president's home or a, a, a teller's home. And there's a very famous story of one guy who was just tort beaten to, he had the hell beat out of him for an hour or two before he finally gave up the combination to the vault. This was in Massachusetts and the bad guys, of course, took the combination that he had finally given them after being tortured, went and opened the vault and made off with about $800,000. Well, banks were in a panic. They didn't want their employees to be subject to that sort of um, harm. So they turned to Yale and to Sergeant Greenleaf and to other makers to produce time locks to go on the door. And what it, what, the way most time locks work is, think of them like having three little clocks that are independent of each other. And what we need is for one of these clocks to run down to zero before the safe or vault can be opened. What that means is when a bank closes at night, uh, typically today, a time lock has three movements in it or three little clocks and bank personnel approach the time lock. One of them winds time. If you're closing up at, say, six o'clock and you want the vault to open at eight o'clock the next morning, you wind 14 hours. So they wind the person, the winder winds 14 hours on clock number one, 14 hours on clock number two, 14 hours on clock number three. Well, the person who's confirming is supposed to look over their shoulder and verify that they did indeed wind the correct number of hours. Once they do that and then shut and lock the vault door, it cannot be opened for any reason until time winds down on at least one movement. And the reason there are three is to provide double redundancy in case they fail. You don't want to be locked out because of a time lock failure. Right. And so what that prevents is somebody going to somebody's house at 1 p.m. and saying, go open that safe. And they really can't do anything because it's out of their hands. The That's time exactly lock right. Away. That's exactly right. And you'll notice when you go into even stores now, you'll see right on the front, say, a 7-Eleven or a Plaid Pantry or even a bank. 
And you'll see a sign that indicates that the safe or the vault cannot be opened. Uh, it's on time lock and what have you. Now in a bank, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be true about the vault because most banks leave the vault open all day throughout the business day. Not so in the case of a, a supermarket or a small store like a 7-Eleven. What they do is they will put the money, larger bills, in a drop slot. And that safe can't be accessed until the time runs down. Now, they don't usually use time locks in those safes. They use time delay locks, which aren't quite as versatile. Uh, but the, the function is the same, to prevent access by the bad guys and the good guys. Right. And you've run into like people trying. You're a professional. You've had uh, maybe people in non-professional, illegal senses trying to get into some of these safes. Can you talk about some of those attempts and what people think they can do with some of these safes? Well, there are two different categories of people who might do that. One is the burglar. The burglar doesn't have permission. He's not attacking the safe with the consent of the safe or vault's owner. And the other category would be a locksmith or a safe technician. In the case of a burglar, when they attack a safe, it's usually wild and crazy with sledgehammers, oxyacetylene torches, you know, pry bars, screwdrivers. Uh, they rarely do anything very smart to a safe. They'll cut the hinges and smash the dial off and break the handle. All that does is lock the safe up even tighter than it was before. Um, the other category of the, the locksmith, unfortunately, not every licensed individual who goes to work on a safe has the requisite skills to do it right. We run into this a lot. Um, all we can do is just try to nudge those people into training classes and what have you yeah, to make them better at what they do so they don't make messes. It gives the industry a black eye when a pro makes a mess on a customer's safe. Right. And you can make messes and you've had kind of uh, experiential moments as well. But you also said, I think you've opened 10,000 safes. Is that correct? Is that your. That's a rough. I mean, it's immense different types. Yeah, Probably a little more, but I didn't want to exaggerate. Yeah. And uh, one of the interesting things about your book, I mean, you in a particular is your kind of uh, your love of philosophy. You almost became a philosophy professor who earns <laughs> his living as a safe crack cracker, right? Yeah. You know, had the timing been a little different, uh, I would be teaching philosophy today. Uh, I was in college and grad school in the late 80s and early 90s. And back then, philosophy departments were having professors retire and they weren't being replaced. And those of us in the grad program were looking at this thinking, oh, boy. And when I saw people way ahead of me in the program, you know, done with their doctorate and just looking for a job, unable to get one, I was like, well, crap. Looks like this isn't going to work out. So I didn't uh, continue on for the doctorate. I left after my MA for that reason. There just weren't any jobs. There weren't enough jobs. Now, I've talked with a few people that I was in the program with. In fact, one of them very recently, Deb Smith. Hey, Deb, if you're out there. Uh, and they did land, eventually land professorships, but I just wasn't in it for the long haul. And you kind of had a relationship with Mortimer, Mortimer Adler, kind of a famous American oh, philosopher, yeah. correct? You know, I did, uh, just luckily. My dad was a, a blue-collar worker like me. He was a truck driver. And yet he had this insatiable appetite to, to learn things. And he loved philosophy. 
without even really knowing what it was. Uh, one day, you know, on a lunch break, pulls his truck into um, a Walden Books and grabs a Mortimer Adler book called Aristotle for Everybody out of the bargain bin. And he brought it home. And we were both just transfixed by this man. Uh, Adler is probably, I don't want to exaggerate, but he is easily one of the clearest writers in the history of philosophy. Uh, sometimes when you read academic works in any field, the jargon, you know, the lexicon of that particular field can be a little jarring for a non-specialist. Adler figured out in about 1976 that writing with too much jargon is not a good thing. He was into effective communication. So he stopped, stopped using basically all jargon. And a reasonably educated person can grab a post-76 book of Adler's and understand it no problem. Right. So he's the opposite of the obscurantist, yes. uh, overly wordy <laughs> philosopher you may not understand after you're done, which is he, kind of unusual. He is the exact opposite of Hegel, who was the worst writer in the history of philosophy, in, in my judgment. And you, almost, you got almost been, unreadable. Right. And you got invited to the Aspen Institute through your relationship with him. So you kind of moved yes. in some fascinating circles. I just got lucky. What happened was I was so taken with this philosopher that I went out and got others of his books. One of them was called uh, How to Think About God. Well, religiously, I'm an agnostic, and I've been an agnostic for most of my life. But I'm fascinated with arguments for the existence of God. I'm fascinated by theodicies, people's attempts to square the existence of evil with the existence of God. And when I read uh, How to Think About God by Adler, I just had so many questions I just wrote him a very long letter. This is pre-internet, by the way. This is 80s. And I found an address for him and shot the letter to him. And I couldn't believe it. I got a letter back inviting me to come to Chicago and spend the afternoon with him in his office at the Institute for Philosophical Research in downtown Chicago and have him answer all these questions, which he did. I went to Chicago and I sat there, you know, I was a, a debater in college. I was a reasonably good debater. Now, my wife was much better. We were national champions, actually, and she was speaker of the year for the whole country. She did the same thing in law school. She won the moot court nationals with her NYU teammates and won every single speaker award herself. So I don't have any, <laughs> I don't have any pretenses or any illusions there. My wife is the speaker in our family and she's, you watch her recorded her parents Appearances before the Supreme Court. She's she's really something. Uh, anyway, she's a great gal. And, and um, oh, back to Adler, uh, even with my debating background, I mean, he just mopped the floor with me. I came at him respectfully, but firmly with my objections and my follow-ups. But man, I'm, he was on an, <laughs> another level entirely. He was, but, uh, yeah. yeah. He, I mean, the, the sorry, please continue. Is, please continue. Well, he, at the end, when he, he stayed, and we were, it was probably early evening by the time we finally finished. And he, again and again, would wanted to make sure that, is that all? Are we done? And finally we were. And then he invited me to be his guest at his Aspen Institute seminars. You know, I was a blue collar young guy at the time. I couldn't afford to, to go to Aspen and sit in his classes. But uh, as his comp guest, I did. I did for many years. That's cool. And That's it cool. was really, really a blast. 
It's a great story. I mean, and do you? I kind of got the sense that kind of your outside interests in philosophy and music kind of uh, kept you kind of mentally pliable for your safe cracking kind of, uh, you know, the, 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 the solutions to all these problems. Do you get a sense that that helped kind of distract you or kind of keep you more pliable? These kind of outside yes. interests? Yeah. That is a really great point, Bill. The If I were dictator of the country, uh, one of the things that, that I would do is make a basic philosophy class absolutely mandatory at every high school in the United States. Why would I do that? Well, when you're in, when you take a philosophy class, one of the things that you learn early on is that it isn't nearly enough. It is not enough to have conviction that your side in an argument is the right side. When you write a philosophy paper, almost every philosophy professor will require that you consider the very best objections the other side might bring to bear against you. And you have to do that. Well, when you do that enough times, you'll end up having a much greater appreciation for the other side in an argument. They aren't idiots. They're not immoral. They're not morons. They're perfectly smart people who have different priors than you do, and they've developed reasonable, reasonably good arguments. Now, sometimes we don't have the proper amount of respect for those, but when you have to give a rendering of the other side that is so good that they would say, yeah, fair enough. You know, you've done it right. And it's just, uh, that's missing today. I don't want to go off into the culture wars, but man, every, the, the conviction that I'm right and other people are wrong, it runs so strong in so many people now. I, I think philosophy is probably the best check against that kind of intellectual arrogance. Hubris is everywhere and it oughtn't be. I agree, totally agree. And you're kind of, I mean, you, these are kind of like mind, uh, each safe has its own thing, solution. So you kind of really have to, it's kind of like a mental exercise. You know, don't you, isn't that challenge kind of what kept you going? For those oh, decades? absolutely, absolutely, yeah. The, when a group of pro safe crackers, when we get together and have drinks or dinner or whatever, uh, we never talk about what was inside a safe. That just doesn't interest us. But one thing that we've all noticed is that when we talk with relatives or with friends that aren't in the business, that's the part that interests them. Well, what was in the safe? Well, I don't know. I didn't look. <laughs> well, that was the good part. Well, to a safe cracker, what we're into is exactly what you said. Safes, you might consider safes to be like a Chinese puzzle. And it's just fascinating to try to figure out how to get the puzzle, how to solve it. And it's a great feeling. The, uh, the, the dopamine hit that you get when you swing the door, it never stops. I've been in the business. Uh, it'll be 50 years next fall. And I still get a thrill when I turn the handle and pull the door open. It's still a super thrill. There's nothing like it, really. And can you talk maybe about some of the more difficult cases you had and what people, what are the more simple? Because some people may not know how some of these safes are really easy to crack and some are very hard, right? Yeah, some of them are super easy. I rarely get those. I don't well, interact with the general public until I'm there to open the safe. I'm not the guy that they would find looking on the internet or looking for an ad. I don't advertise, never have. All of my work is by referral, but many of the companies that refer difficult jobs to me are quite capable of doing the easy ones that you're talking about themselves. So uh, consequently, uh, 
I don't have nearly as many stories of the super easy openings that a lot of my colleagues have for that reason that my work is referral only and I don't get the easy ones. Darn it. Gotcha. So you have the tough ones. So you get handed the ones where there's a time frame or these things need to get done. Can you talk, I mean, you, you've cracked a lot. A lot of people want to know about the contents. I mean, you have opened some with a lot, some very interesting contents, correct? Oh yeah. Do you yes. feel like sharing any of those stories or maybe, maybe some oh, are too graphic. I don't know. There's so many, uh, you know, what we see, the, there are basically three or four or five categories of things that we see in safes. Obviously cash. And most of the time cash is kept in a bank bag or wrapped up or hidden somewhere. And you, do, you don't see it unless they actually unroll it or expose it in your presence. <clears throat> we'll see sexual paraphernalia of all sorts. And that's usually out in the open, oddly. Uh, drugs, lots of pot. And you can often smell, if a safe full of pot, you can smell it from across the room. Uh, bearer bonds. Oh, well, recently, uh, a couple of, actually a couple of years ago, uh, this super nice gal from Idaho had come over to Portland, Oregon to handle her brother's estate after his passing. And I, my job that day had gone badly and I was late getting to her. And by the time I got there, they already had the safe in the U-Haul. It was an, an AMSEC gun safe, and it was in her U-Haul where they were getting ready to head out and drive back to Idaho. So I whip in there, and we run an extension cord and drill the safe open. Everything's good. Safe is absolutely packed with all the things that we mentioned. Every category was hit. No need to go further except one thing. Bottom of the safe, there was a... Tops 3D three uh, ring binder, 1952 rookie cards in baseball. Well, I was a baseball player as a kid. My favorite player was Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle's rookie year was 1952. My jaw hit the ground when I saw that and thought, oh my God, no way, no way is there Mickey Mantle's rookie card in this book. So we start opening it and turning the pages. Sure enough. Mickey Mantle's rookie card and 299 others were in this book, uh, this Topps 1952 rookie card book in perfect shape. It had never been touched by human hands. I had no idea how valuable it was. I knew it was super valuable. I didn't know how much. So we went on the internet and coincidentally, one had just sold on eBay for 2.8 million. So she was, she was over the moon. Uh, I got a nice handsome tip on that job. We don't often get tips, but that day I did. Well, that's cool. I mean, that's an interesting story. You also tell the story about people buying safes at auctions or there was a safe somewhere in Portland from an old building. Like it's almost like you're an archaeologist or something uncovering these items that uh, were formerly lost. I mean, it's really interesting how many I didn't really realize the breadth of how many safes and how much necessity it really is. These banks really need you to come out and open these, uh, the malfunctioning safes, right? There's like time and cost and everything if, they, if they're not open, right? Right. Yeah, bankers and jewelers tend to get a little anxious when they can't get into their safes or vaults and there's pressure immediately. They need in and they need in as quickly as possible. You know, their stock and trade is locked up. They can't really do business the way they would prefer to without getting into their, um, into their safe or vault. Um, 
And what was the first part of your question, Bill? Well, I was just saying that they, uh, there's you've opened up so many different safes, and people have bought safes. They don't know the contents. It's like going to, uh, you know, it's a storage facility and seeing what's in there. You tell one story, Reno. These people bought something out of uh, San Francisco that paid their call, you know, their kids' college. So they were excited about the contents there. But also, you kind of uh, cover a lot of films and movies where there's always safe crackers. And some of them, you said they actually did a good job, and some didn't, right? I mean, was it the Italian job, Takes a Thief? What are the other ones? Oh, there's dozens and dozens of them. Uh, safe crackers are lovers, almost to a person, of movies with safe cracking scenes in them. And we're of two minds about it. I'm not going to say we're, we're hypocritical, because I don't think we are, but we're of two minds about it. And you can hear us, you know, if we're together as a group watching a safe cracking scene, if it isn't realistic, uh, we safe crack and we go, oh, what a load of crap. That's not the way we do it. But if they get too realistic, we're like appalled. Oh, my God, they're showing the general public how to open a safe. They shouldn't be doing this. And usually one of us will remind the group, so which way is it going to be, guys? Are we going to get mad when they're too close to reality? Or are we going to get mad when they aren't real enough? So that's us. We're safe crackers. We you criticize them. You, you, yeah, you criticize them. What's the James Conn one? Is it a thief? Is that the one he was in? Where yeah. he was like burrowing with super high, uh, high, high Fahrenheit drills or something. I just remember seeing that back in the day. Well, that was the first movie that I know of where a burning bar was used, a lance that burns, you know, about 8,000 degrees or so at the tip. Uh, that was impressive as hell because they had only been out. Uh, in a semi-portable version for a short time when they used it in that movie. I think that was a, a Michael Mann movie, if I recall right. Oh, interesting. Khan was great in it. That was a, a super cool scene when he used it. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a scene can be really riveting without reflecting reality perfectly. And we eventually just get over that and, and realize it can be a great movie, even if they aren't doing it exactly the way we would. Right. It's probably better that they're not exposing it to the public. Oh, um, definitely. Uh, we're at about 35 minutes. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything that I missed that you'd like to wrap? I mean, you have this fascinating sequence. I don't want to tell the whole story, but you were involved after Prince, uh, Prince's untimely demise, right? Yeah. The most safe crackers have a specialty. And by the way, it's the reason, the, the reason that I often say there's no such thing as the best safe cracker. The reason I say that is that there are a bunch of specialties and the three big ones would be key lock picking. There are safes in the United States with high security key locks, mostly from Europe in them. And there are specialists here. We have Phil Scherer, who's probably the world's reigning key lock expert out of Boston. We've got a, a spiking expert out of Boise, Idaho, Lance Mayhew down there. And these are guys at manipulation. We've got guys who are unbelievably good at manipulating safes and balls open. They're specialists. And no one is top dog or even close to being top dog in all the specialties. My specialty happens to be bank balls. I've opened lots and lots and lots of bank balls in a variety of different circumstances and malfunctions and what have you. So yeah, I got the call to go open Prince's Vault at Paisley Park after he passed. That's right. Yeah, that's a great story. Really fascinating. People have to get the book to read that. I mean, that 
that's like if you don't want to talk about the contents that are priceless that's probably oh. like uh the holy grail of price and a priceless material it was incredible really yeah. incredible story and you're right the, the the literal worth of what was in prince's vault dwarfs the worth of every vault and safe i've ever opened in my entire life put together they're just you know the estimates i've seen range from 200 to 300 million dollars uh, that's hard to compete with right i mean it's not even just the value of the music it's just having his writing on certain stuff people would buy that for you know right. just for memorabilia thing i've heard well we can get it i heard hefner had quite a vault too or still does have a vault, but uh, that would be interesting to get into his. Because I've heard that all these rich guys have these panic rooms and vaults. So your career, I think your career and other people's safe cracking career uh, will be safe for the future. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Look, so long as human nature is slightly flawed, and it is, and people sometimes try to take things that aren't theirs, we're going to need safes and safe crackers. There's no getting around it. Yeah, that's a great way to end it. And where's the best place for people to get this book, Safecracker? Well, right now, probably Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Right, so you can uh, get it. Yeah. yeah, both of them have it in stock. We ran out a while back, and there was a little panic when we didn't have books to give to the booksellers, but we do now. Good, so you're back in, back in business. We're back and, in business. And do you have, like, a social media? Are you on Facebook, Twitter, or someplace where people can reach out to you if they want to? You know, my agent and my publisher have both pushed me hard to do more in social media. It's just so much of a mystery to me. I'm on Twitter, you know, engaging in the in the culture wars usually every day, but I don't use it much for business. I probably okay. should. So you can people can reach out to the publisher here. I can't remember who the publisher your book is. But Roman and, and Littlefield. Roman and but Littlefield. If, yeah. if they want the book, I would just tell them go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Yeah, and like I said, it has right now 44 five-star reviews. And you can just tell the first person, like, you have so much accrued experience and knowledge in this. It, it, it starts from – it's included in the book from the beginning chapter to, chapter to the end. So congratulations. Really a fascinating read on my part. Again, the title of the book is Safe Cracker, a chronicle of the coolest job in the world. And the author is Dave McComey. Thank you so much, Dave. Oh, thank you, Bill. Right, Thanks for having me on. All right, stay there. Stay there. Bye. Stay there.